Last week, we were encouraged to come out of the shadows of legalism and restrictions and observances and to enjoy a life based on a relationship with Christ. Now, I realize that makes some Christians nervous. They're afraid of too much liberty. They feel we need rules and regulations and laws in our religious life or everything will fall apart. That if we open the door, we'll lose control. And it is possible to swing the pendulum too far. To say that Jesus loves you, that he will forgive you, so feel free to do whatever you want. Paul's response to that presumptive misuse of grace is, may it never be, or as the King James puts it, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live in it? The answer to the abuse of grace, however, is not laws and restrictions. It's love and relationship. You know, we don't need anyone to tell us not to sin against someone we love. I think all would agree with that. But there are still those who are afraid to let love guide them or their brother. They feel we must write up lists of rules to follow. And it can be helpful to note what is and is not loving behavior and to warn about the consequences of poor choices. We can even express our opinion about the appropriateness or wisdom of certain behaviors, as I did about drinking alcohol last week. But if we start writing lists and demanding that others show love the way we think they ought to, we can very easily end up with a religion that is more man-made than God-given. And that was happening in Colossae. In an attempt to be faithful to Christ, they were actually creating what Paul called a self-made religion. And he wanted them to understand that while such a religion may appear to be very religious, it actually comes from a fleshly mind, it deals with fleshly matters, and it fails to control fleshly indulgence. In short, it just doesn't work because it's not from God. It comes from a fleshly mind. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. That's actually an athletic terminology. 
And it means let no one disqualify you. Let no one rule you out of the game. Paul is saying we must not let anyone act as umpire and disqualify us for not following their rules. Rules written, he says, by those who delight in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Now, the NIV translates self-abasement as false humility. It means to make a show of putting yourself down. Some actually believe it's a technical term for fasting. Since the Old Testament, this was the usual way to appear humble before God. The connection of self-abasement with the worship of angels probably indicates these individuals felt that they weren't worthy to go directly to God and had to go through angels. And that may seem very humble and even pious to put ourselves down and say we're not worthy to go directly to God and to use uh, angels as intermediaries, but it's not biblical. We are to humble ourselves before God, and we are to serve one another in humility, but that's not self-abasement. True humility leads us to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not to make self-deprecating statements or live lives of mock humility. And Paul makes it very clear. In 1 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Nowhere in scriptures are we told to pray to angels or saints or departed loved ones. We have a direct line to God through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to go around him in an attempt to get to God is not an act of humility. It's an affront to the one who died to become our mediator. So where do these religious-sounding but unscriptural ideas come from? Those who propose them might say they come from visions they've received. And they may have had a vision. Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive us. More likely, however, they come from an inflated mind, from someone who wants to have a vision so they can speak with divine authority and have others be in awe of them. Someone who can practice self-exaltation under the guise of self-abasement. Paul makes it clear that spiritual-sounding ideas that come in the form of additional rules and regulations actually come from a fleshly mind, from a mind that doesn't hold fast to the head to Christ and cuts itself off from the body, the church, from a mind that sets itself up as the authority in opposition to the church through which God brings real spiritual growth. Now, that's not to say that the church doesn't need to be reformed at times or that we don't need an occasional voice crying in the wilderness. 
But if someone comes preaching a radically different gospel, no matter how religious it sounds, we must check it out against what Christ has said and what the church has practiced throughout the years. There is safety in that. We may discover that what's being taught is nothing more than the product of a fleshly mind. And this is something that happens all the time. There are so many false prophets out there proclaiming authority based on some vision or revelation or whatever that they have something new to tell you that God didn't tell you. Paul says that comes from a fleshly mind. And most often those messages... Messages of self-made religion deal with fleshly matters, which is interesting. He says, continuing in verses 20 through 22, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Now, the elementary principles that he speaks of are the basic laws that are needed to keep the lid on sin in the world. Laws and regulations that force people to do the right thing, whether they want to or not. Paul reminds us here that those who are in Christ have died to sin. They have made a choice to stop living lives of sin. They have died to self and selfish desires. They have committed themselves to living for God and his glory. And they have therefore also died to the laws. They no longer need law. They no longer need the external motivation of the law. They're motivated to do what's right from within. So it's ridiculous for us to go back into a system of legalistic decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, there are some things that we won't handle or taste or touch. Even though all things are lawful for us, since we are no longer under the law, not all things are profitable. They won't help us achieve our goal of Christ-likeness, so we avoid them. We also recognize that if we toy with some things, they can easily become our masters, so we stay away from them. We've already chosen our master. But we cannot let anyone convince us that spiritual defilement comes from handling, tasting, or touching something that is material and perishable. Jesus made it very clear that defilement comes from a sinful heart. And not from material things. And he's in the business of changing hearts. Making a difference on the inside. Now, the difference will be reflected on the outside. We can't be changed on the inside and remain the same on the outside. But Christianity does not focus on the externals. 
It doesn't have to. Sometimes with our constant harping about what people do, gives them the impression that becoming a Christian means that's all we talk about, what you shouldn't do. We should be talking about the change Christ makes inside. Obviously, that will make a big difference in what we do. But that's not our message. Our message is a changed heart. That's the gospel. That is God-given religion. Man-made religion does focus on the externals. And it does so because externals are easy to see and easy to judge. Our judgment, of course, can be wrong. You can act religious without being religious. The Pharisees taught us that. But that's all self-made religion really has to offer, the appearance of religion. There are lots of things that seem very religious. But that's self-made religion. And it becomes obvious because those restrictions become more and more restrictive all the time. Trying to maintain a facade of righteousness is hard. It, it begins with, well, don't handle that, and then, or this, and then don't handle that, and then don't handle anything. It's such a temptation to make lists and say, if you're going to, to be a part of our fellowship or our leadership or whatever, you've got to do this, 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 and this. A sign right here. It sounds so right. I remember years ago hearing from preachers who were doing that with their eldership and the leadership in the church. And, and boy, they had the coolest list. And you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I thought, man, that's really cool. We're going to have spiritual men if they sign that. No, no. You're going to have men who have succumbed to man-made rules, not necessarily men whose hearts have been given to Christ. That's what we want. That's what we're after. Not a self-made religion. Or religion, a Christianity that keeps adding self-made elements. Those religions are ultimately going to fail. Because they fail to do what we think they'll do. They fail to control fleshly indulgence. This is interesting. Verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know, it seems logical that the way to control fleshly indulgence is to put restrictions on the flesh. But if that were true... The more severe the restrictions, the more spiritual we would become. That's why clothesline preachers seem so righteous. Now, we don't talk about them that often. They're not as prevalent as they once were. The clothesline preachers are preachers who focus on what members eat and wear and drink and watch and listen to. And the guy with the longest list on the line is viewed by those who share his thinking as the most spiritual. Now, obviously, clothesline preachers weren't the first to teach that's the way to become spiritual. Some were teaching it in Colossae. 
And the hermits and monks of the 4th and 5th centuries also taught that to be the case. And this is having quite a resurgence today. If you're into religious books and blogs and whatever else they do, you're probably hearing about bringing back old spiritual disciplines, hearing about things that that we need to begin practicing again, things that the monks used to do. That's, That's not exactly where I think we're supposed to be. Monks made some bad choices. They decided the way to be spiritual was to deny desires, to refuse appetites, and to deprive the body. And the more severe the treatment became, the more spiritual they thought they were becoming. They started with hair shirts. Now, I use that phrase in Bible study. I saw you squint your eyes again. What in the world is a hair shirt? It's a shirt that's made out of itchy stuff. Okay, itchy hair. All right. They started wearing hair shirts, thinking if they were uncomfortable, they'd be reminded they had to be good. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's where they started. And then, then they went to hard beds. You know, can't, can't sleep comfortably. And, and then meager rations, just barely eating enough to stay alive. And then they started whipping themselves. And coming up with novel ways to demonstrate their desire to be spiritual. One of my favorites is St. Simeon Stylites. He lived about the turn of the 5th century. He lived for several months buried to his neck in sand. So I assume somebody fed him something. But then he decided that he needed to go a little higher. (laughs) And so he moved on to pole sitting. And he lived on top of a 60-foot pillar near Antioch for 35 years. He was regarded the most spiritual of the saints of the time. And he's admired by some even today. Now, all of these efforts were attempts to gain victory over the flesh and to be spiritual. But they discovered that the harder they fought against the flesh, the more it dominated them. A woodcut of a 4th or 5th century monk illustrated this powerfully. You know, monks generally regarded women as a source of temptation and sin. And therefore, they withdrew from any contact with them. The irony is that they often then became obsessed with sex. And to keep from thinking about it, they would intentionally inflict themselves with pain. The woodcut that I mentioned shows a monk actually burning his fingers off with a woman standing right behind him with her hand on his shoulder. It didn't work. Apparently the monks hadn't read what Paul said in Colossians 2.23, that self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgences. That's not the way you conquer it. So how do we bring the flesh 
into control. We acknowledge there's a need to do that. Well, I think no one said it better than the great expositor of a generation ago, Alexander McLaren. He said, there is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. He is the only one who can give us victory over sin. And he does it by grace, not by law. He forgives us for failing, and then he changes our heart. He does more than restrain desires. He gives us new ones. He puts within us the very nature of God. No man-made, self-made religion can do that. The only way to get it is to invite Jesus in and give him control of your life. Now, this isn't easy to do. And it's not something you do once and forget about. The flesh constantly battles against the spirit. But we don't win the battle by just trying to whip the flesh into obedience. We win the battle by celebrating the grace of Christ. By staying ever aware of his presence in our life. By embracing his forgiveness when we fall short. And asking for his spirit to empower us to handle the temptation the next time it comes. That's how you win. That's how you win. It's by grace. Not by a list of rules of things you can't do or focusing on trying to control everything yourself. Because you can't control it. The Apostle Paul even said that. He said, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul said that. But then he said, oh, wow. Thanks be to God for Christ who forgives me. That's how you find victory over sin. It's not by beating yourself up. It's by thanking God for his presence within and staying ever aware of it, not cutting yourself off from the fellowship of the church, thinking it's just me and Jesus doing our own thing and I can get by reading religious books and, and learning from this one and that one. No, 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 no. It's being part of a body. It's through the body that growth comes and by staying attached to the head. That's how we become what Christ wants us to be. Sin is real. We're not denying it. We're acknowledging that, that in and of ourselves, we cannot control it. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Christ. The indwelling presence of God in you is the only way to live a life that honors him. Have you any room for Jesus? The old hymn says, you know, we've got time for this and time for that. And our lives are busy. Make sure you have room for him. And you acknowledge his presence.
presence in all that you do. Have you any room? I pray that you do. I pray that you do. Because Christ can do for you what all the laws and rules and regulations that men can come up with can never do. He can actually change your heart. Let's thank him for that this morning.